0: Are listening to the Loop Podcast, a project in plastic surgery innovation. All right, hello everyone, and welcome back to the Loop. Today, I have an incredible opportunity to speak with a legend in plastic surgery, Dr. Louis Vasquez. We will be going through his life experiences and how he came to be where he is today. Dr. Vasquez has endless accolades that we will get to, but to me, he has been an incredible mentor. We met back in 2010, my first year of medical school, and your patient interactions and professionalism are what led me into plastic surgery. So welcome, Dr. Vasquez.
1: Thank you, Morgan.
0: Instead of giving us a clinical talk, I want to take our listeners on a journey of how you accomplished so many incredible things and what obstacles you had to overcome along the way. So first, take me back to when you were young. Where did you grow up, and how was life for you back then?
1: I am originally from Ecuador, South America, a small town Colambato, which is south of Quito, the capital. I went to grammar school and high school, and my childhood was probably unremarkable. I was happy all the time, I think, and I must say that I was always academically inclined in that we had at least three of my classmates in grammar school that I still, I'm still still in contact with them. And there wow. was a, an unspoken rivalry on arithmetic, and <laughs> who knew more about the multiplication tables than the other one?
0: Wow, that's incredible. So tell me about what it was like coming to the United States and getting into medical school. Was that difficult for you, and did you have any setbacks along the way?
2: No.
1: I have been extremely fortunate and very lucky. My father emigrated to the United States in the middle of the 1950s. And he was able to emigrate because during World War II, the United States asked for volunteers to come and fight during World War II. And my father actually volunteered and came to New Jersey. and But he ne- never got wow. to go to war. But they did teach him aviation mechanics. So wow. he became an aeronautical mechanic of airplanes. After he came back, he we all emigrated to the United States. And uh, that was at the last year of high school. I finished my 12th year in high school at the Miami Senior High School. I must say that uh, it was a very satisfying experience because I had been prepared quite well from the school in Ecuador. And I That's thought great. that uh, I, I did okay. Then I applied for college. I wanted to go to Columbia University, and I was accepted to Columbia University. But then at that time, the tuition was, I'm just guessing, but it was something <laughs> like $700, which oh my God. appears to be nothing right now. <laughs> but you have to remember that my father probably was making less than $5,000 a year. Wow. So he says, well, you can go, but... I don't know how we can support you so it was difficult and then I decided to go to University of Miami, which was where we're living and that was a very nice experience. I finished college in three years and I was able to work full-time and at the same time as uh, going to college it was not that difficult
2: wow, and I
1: work must say time. yeah and I must say I was a bad boy. I don't. I don't think you know what that is. But a I used to work boy? a bag. No, a bag boy.
0: Oh, a bag boy. Yeah,
1: that was I working it. at the food fair. Okay. Stores. I was bagging the bags. Sure. And then I take the the bags to the cars of the ladies. I must say that they must have liked them because they used to give me a quarter for dinner, <laughs> which at that time was a lot of. That's money. a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I I worked, and uh, the University of Miami was very kind. They, uh, at that time, they didn't have any affirmative action. They didn't have any loans for students or anything else. But somehow, uh, I didn't need, I didn't have the money for the tuition one year. And says, don't worry about it. We'll lend you. So they lent me $500, which is probably what the tuition was.
0: Right. And uh,
1: uh, I finished it. And then for medical school, it was also very fortuitous and very lucky. Mm -hmm. I didn't have to go interview, but the dean of the medical school, his name was M. Kenton King, who became a very famous dean uh, of Washington University School of Medicine in Mm St. Louis, came to the University of Miami and interviewed three of us, and all three of us got got accepted. So I went to medical school there for four years, and I must say that... uh, uh, they did give me a scholarship to medical school, and that is why I'm so grateful. And uh, I, was re- I will remember Washington University in my, whatever you call it, in my will or, or whatever, because oh, they made excellent. me what I am.
2: Oh.
1: And uh, But I also worked because they paid the tuition, but I also worked as a deaner. A deaner means a servant. And what that means is mm-hmm. that I used to, go ahead and pick up the bodies because at that time everybody who died had an autopsy and the autopsy was being done. uh, They didn't want to hold the bodies too long. So if somebody died at night, Mm -hmm. I had to go and pick up the body and get it ready for the pathologist to do the autopsy. And I did that for four years. And for that, they gave me room on board at the hospital. So it was a very enjoyable experience.
0: That's incredible. So tell me about residency. So you did general surgery first.
1: I actually did a combined program. Okay. And what you would now call it an integrated type program. okay.
2: Oh, but at okay. that time, we
1: didn't have any integrated right. program. But I must say that I interned at the University of Rochester,
2: mm-hmm. and I
1: have developed a number of role models that I'm going to describe, three of them. One was Dr. Robert McCormack, who was the Chief of Plastic Surgery at the University of Rochester. The other one was Dr. Maurice J. Yurkevich, who was the Chief of Plastic Surgery at the University of Florida in Gainesville, Florida. And the third one was Leonard Furlough, who was a few years ahead of me in training. But he is the one that I believe taught me how to think and how to analyze a problem. In other words, when there was a reconstructive program to say something, he says, look at the problem and see what are the options that you have. And only after you have decided what to do, then go and see what the books say. So he taught me how to think, and I have carried that teaching from Leonard Furlow. And he's still alive, and he's still my good friend, and comes to the Southeastern Society of Plastic Surgeons just about every year, although I will call him because the Next meeting is in Hilton Head. Sure. His wife died last year mm-hmm. and he and maybe things a little bit
2: different now.
0: So is this the furlough palatoplasty? that this we This is the furlough
1: palatoplasty. <laughs> but Dr. Furlough was not just the furlough palatoplasty, I suppose that's why how people recognize him right sure. now. But he taught us how to think. His inquisitive mind and his powers of operations, he was able to transmit That ability to me for one, and also to many other of his trainees and friends.
0: That's incredible. All right. So tell me about the early years of muscle flaps and your experience. I want to hear all about it. So first, let me say I found the citation from 1974. wasn't even listed on PubMed, but I found the citation entitled, Coverage of Exposed Bone by Muscle Transposition and Skin Grafting, written by you. So was this the first description of the gastroc flap?
1: Most likely. The reason I say most likely is because somebody will say, well... I looked at the 19th century German textbook, and it was there, so I say most likely. But let me say, I think this is an interesting story about the muscle flaps and myocutaneous flaps. I was completing my combined residency, which was at the University of Florida and the University of Rochester in Rochester, New York, Mm -hmm. under Dr. Robin McCormack and Carl Blades. Mm-hmm. I was must have been about May or June before I finished my training at the end of June before I was going to start on the faculty at the University of Florida and There was a patient who had an exposed tibial bone and he was fifty five years old. All of the exposed bone at that time were covered with cross leg flaps I see but we did not do cross leg flaps on anybody over 50 years old because it was just too much, three weeks with the legs crossed, sure. three weeks. So I asked Dr. Blades, and I said, Hal, I used to call him Hal because he was so kind, uh, why don't you let me do, uh, do a muscle flap because I just read the little throwaway, and this is true. I read the little throwaway article by, by a South African general surgeon from New York, and I says, "We're gonna amputate this leg anyway. Why don't you let me see if I can work with the muscle flap and cover it with the muscle flap?" And I show him the article, I say, "Okay, Louis, try it, but make sure you put him on an amputation the next day." Okay? <laughs> so I did it, and I don't know which muscle I transposed. And I don't have any pictures because you know, right now it's so easy to take pictures with my right. phone. At that time, it was a big undertaking. First of all, you had to buy a camera, which right. cost several hundred dollars. <laughs> and uh, and it worked. Ever since then, I finished my training. I, I joined the faculty at the University of Florida, and we had access to fresh cadavers. Okay. So we started studying the anatomy of the muscles. Because if you looked at the great textbooks of anatomy, Testi and Rubier and all those things, uh, all they said at that time, I don't know how, how they say it now, I haven't read them lately, but all they said was muscular branches are given. But they didn't know where, at what level, or whatever. Okay. So we started studying where the blood supply to the muscle comes from. And that is where we developed The muscle flaps from the gastrocnemius to the soleus, and uh, so forth, and we know where the blood supply was. Mm -hmm. That is the first article, and I must say that uh, uh, I wasn't just waiting on uh, trauma to do this. Right. Then we were exposed to osteomyelitis, chronic osteomyelitis of the leg. Okay. At that time, the osteomyelitis. Was treated by the breathing and wait until it granulates. Actually, it wasn't treated. They just went through the motions of washing them and then they had to come back again until they get tired and then they went out. We couldn't treat it. Mm-hmm. So they sent me a patient and I says, Well, I'm going to go ahead and put a muscle flap on this. And I think at that time the muscle flap was probably the soleus because it was the middle third. No, mm-hmm. I cannot. I, I have. Those slides somewhere, but I don't know where. Sure. And uh, I put the soleus after I debrided, and Mm -hmm. it worked. Then, as you know, you don't wait for the doctors to refer you to those patients, but the patients talk to other patients. And there was a lot of patients with osteomyelitis, and then all of a sudden I was Mm -hmm. sent a number more of patients with osteomyelitis, and we debrided. And at the same time, and this is an important thing because a lot of people are forgetting that now, that when you have chronic osteomyelitis, you debride it one time and at the same time put the muscle flap and the chances of healing that wound are very, very good. So uh, that was the muscle flap. I presented the muscle flaps at the international meeting in Paris, I believe it was in 1971. And I must say, that it was like one of those concerts (laughs) that you (laughs) go to where the people come in at the end of the concert and they want autographs and all that. (laughs) There was a line of people. How did you do this? How do you do this? Come come to my university and teach and show us all this. Yes, yes, yes. Wonderful. So out of that came some invitations. And one invitation was to Colombia, Bogotá. And this is an important thing because I presented the muscle flaps. And then there was another genius in plastic surgeon who was still alive. And his name was Miguel Orticochea. Mm -hmm. And he invited me to his house. And uh, we were having dinner. And uh, in the middle of dinner, I got a phone call. And he says, Loy, you're going to have to forgive me, but I have to go to the hostel because my cross leg flap is bleeding. Mm -hmm. And I said, Miguel, just tell him to put a little bit of pressure. It wouldn't wouldn't go anywhere. It's just a little (laughs) cross leg flap. He says, No, Louis, this is a different cross leg flap. Okay. Can I go come with you? Sure. And sure enough, he had done. This is, you couldn't do it this day and age. But he had done a gracilis myocutaneous flap to the lower leg. That means that he crossed the leg on a young person all the way to the thigh. (laughs) Oh my
0: goodness.
1: (laughs) And uh, sure enough, it was bleeding. And I said, This is a concept, the myocutaneous flap. I immediately recognized that concept. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Orticoche's wife was coming to the United States for an infertility problem. And uh, he says, Well, why don't you come to Miami as you're planning and come a few days ahead of time. At that time, it wasn't like it is now that if you, you have to stop by the bank if you want to change the reservations. At <laughs> that time, you just changed and no right. problem. So he says, oh, I'll come and pick you up in Miami, and I'll bring you to Gainesville so that you can give a talk on this muscle, myocutaneous flaps. And sure enough, he came to Miami and picked him up with his wife, brought him in. He doesn't speak any English, so I had to translate now, this is important. John McRaw was a resident with us at that time.
2: Mm-hmm. John
1: McCraw is another genius and is one of my best friends. He was the top graduate from the University of Missouri in Missouri and then had an orthopedic residency at Duke University.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Dr. Leonard Garner, who was the chairman of orthopedics at that time, put him to work on ischemic Vogman's contracture, which is mm-hmm. muscles, for a year. So he knew. A lot about the muscles. Mm-hmm. And John McCraw listened to that talk on my cutaneous trap and immediately lit up something in his mind.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then John McCraw and I, after the Article chair left at the VA, at the Atlanta VA Hospital.
2: Oh, yeah.
1: It must have been, please forgive me on the dates because I didn't have time to prepare the dates or anything else. So. That's okay. Yeah. But it must have been 1974 or 75. Okay. There was a patient with a sacral sore at the VA hostel in Atlanta. And we said, we're going to treat this with myocutaneous flaps. So we moved the skin and the muscle, I don't know, the whole of the gluteal muscles, all right. the way down to the bone, and we moved <laughs> it, and it worked. And it
0: worked. And it worked. <laughs>
1: and it worked. So that was the first myocutaneous flaps. Mm-hmm. Then Macro finished his training, and he went to the Air Force, uh, Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio. And then we started studying all the muscles mm-hmm. and musculocutaneous flaps. Since we knew the anatomy of the leg, we wanted to work with the gracilis and the, the, mm-hmm. the gastrocnemius, medial head of the gastrocnemius and so forth. So we worked on that. And we had a very close relationship with uh, John Macroe and myself. Again, I must emphasize that we used to call two, three times a week.
2: Mm-hmm. But at that
1: time, the phone calls are not like they are now. Right At that time, you had to make an appointment to make a long-distance phone call, and okay. you had to pay a lot of money. But McCraw was in the Air Force, and I was at the university, so he would call me probably on the government line, <laughs> and I would <will> answer on <laughs> yeah. the Emory line, and Dr. Ukewicz never...
0: Uh, he never asked for...
1: Well, <laughs> he never asked or he never knew it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so it was a wonderful yeah. thing because he would do a case... And he will tell me, I will do a case, and I will tell him. Mm-hmm. And we developed a lot of my flaps. The other one that has uh, mm-hmm. developed the rectus abdominis vertical, not the heart flap. Mm-hmm. But uh, – that's the beginning of the muscle flaps and the myocutaneous flaps. The rest is history. I must point out one important fact, and that is Dr. Stephen Mathis, who unfortunately died relatively young with a lateral sclerosis, mm-hmm. sure. was a resident at Emory, and he did a lot of the cadaver studies on the muscles and also the cutaneous flaps with mm-hmm. Dr. Nahai. And right. then I moved to San Francisco, and Dr. Mathis was on the faculty at Washington University in St. Louis. And I asked, Steve, I would like for you to join me in San Francisco. And sure enough, he came and joined me. And we continued with the studies on the muscle, the flaps in the cadavers. And Dr. Nahai, who you know quite well, mm-hmm. he used to come to San Francisco, I don't know, maybe once every six weeks, once a month to come out well, for that's the a weekends. Lot. A lot. <laughs> And at that time, remember, it was expensive, and uh, there weren't many jets. Maybe it was just uh, six hours or whatever. And Dr. Mathis and Dr. Nakai continued doing the studies, and then they wrote the book, which was a fantastic contribution on the muscles and the muscle cutaneous flaps. So that is, I'm sorry that I was a little bit nervous, but I think that this is important. To know.
0: It is very important and is an integral part of everything we learn today in plastic surgery. So I'm so glad to have this experience with you. So my qu- next question for you is, tell me about UCSF. I know you were an integral part of the early years of that program back, I believe it was 1978. So tell me about that experience.
1: Well, I must say that after I finished my training at the University of Rochester and the University of Florida, Dr. Ma, Dr. Yurkewicz, Asked me if I would come and join him at the University of Florida on the faculty, and there was Leonard Furlough too.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I did not hesitate, so I went there. I had, my, let me say, I had offers from Hopkins, from Washington University, and the lowest paying job <laughs> was the one there. But I, I didn't yeah. hesitate, and I stayed there a year, and then Dr. Ikewish decided to come and start the program at Emory. Mm-hmm. he says, uh, I would like for you to join me at Emory, and, and I said and I talked to my wife, and I says, I just, we just bought this house, we just <laughs> moved into this house, and now you want to move to Atlanta. <laughs> I said, yes, because Dr. Ukewish is moving to Emory. So <laughs> I was there probably a year, and then I moved with Dr. Ukewish to the Emory University, where he started the program and, uh, at Emory, and the rest, as you know. I don't have to exemplify it. So I stayed at Emory for seven years, and then I had a number of offers to become chief at Mm -hmm. other institutions. But I was happy here, and I was doing what I liked, and I developed a good practice. But then UCSF called, and they called repeatedly, and Paul Eber, who became a very good friend of mine, kept insistent and made a trip to Florida and says, I'd like for you to join us. It's a wonderful opportunity, so we decided to go to San Francisco and become the chief of plastic surgery at UCSF. By that time, plastic surgery had been on probation six of the last eight years.
0: Wow. So
2: it was
1: was not... uh, but uh, with the help of Dr. Ebert and the help of the university, we immediately changed that. And math, uh, Steve Mathis helped me,
2: mm-hmm. and
1: we were able to recruit first-class residents mm-hmm. and so forth. And I stayed there seven years, and after seven years, it was 78 to 85, almost looks like a seven-year age, I came to Birmingham. Now, I should uh, take a little bit of time to tell you why I left UCSF to come to Birmingham. Uh, Birmingham. Dr. John W. Kirkling and Dr. Dietham, as -hmm. you know. Yep. Yeah, Dr. Dietham had just, and Dr. Kirkling had stepped down, and Dr. Dietham became the chief. And there was a salient weakness in, in Birmingham, which was they didn't have any plastic surgery superb cardiac surgery, superb everything else, but mm-hmm. no plastic surgery. Mm-hmm. So one of the objectives of Dr. Litho was, was to start plastic surgery. So he called me as a consultant, and I came down and looked at it, and I wrote a nice letter, and I said, well, if you want to get a first-class plastic surgery, you need this, 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 and this. So after a few days, after I sent the letter, or maybe a week or so, he calls me up and he says, "Louis." there's no problem. Would you mind coming down? Because there's no problem filling all of the requests that you say for a good plastic surgeon. And I said, Dr. Dickham, thank you very, very much. That was very, very kind. But that was for you to get somebody else. As you know, I am here in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And he says, well, would you mind coming back and see if there is any way that uh, you could come back to the South? And I came back. And I told him everything that was necessary to develop a good plastic surgery. And I must say that the most intriguing factor in that decision to come to Birmingham was Dr. John W. Kirkling. Because mm-hmm. Dr. Kirkling, I I don't know if you know, but he was the chief of surgery at the Mayo Clinic and came to Birmingham and started the program in surgery
2: mm-hmm. and
1: changed it completely. So Dr. Kirkling says, Louis, there are many opportunities. Where you are given all of the resources to start the new program on your own, and I said, Doctor Kirkling, all of the resources. Yes, just ask Dietham. Mm-hmm. He will give you. Sure enough, ask him, and it was an opportunity to start the new program. And that is why I'm very, very fond of the University of Alabama, because we developed that program. I was very happy. Everybody thought that I was crazy leaving San Francisco to come into Birmingham. And I must say, I never had second thoughts on that decision. I did have a hard time making up my mind to the point that even the governor, Dr. (laughs) George, uh, Governor Wallace, was the governor of Alabama (laughs) at that time. He came to San Francisco and took us to dinner really so, yeah so they really wanted me <laughs> and uh, wow. it has been a wonderful experience there i stayed 30 years
0: and, wow 30 years yeah now for the listeners i went to medical school at uab so it also holds a special place in my heart and that's where i met dr Baskin. is so that's incredible all right let's talk about i believe you were the first to describe the endoscopic brow lift is that correct in 1994 so how did that come about
1: That came about, you probably do not know, but in 1992, 94, we had a big problem with breast implants. Okay. We are having a little problem with breast implants that we're handling it just beautifully. Mm -hmm. But at that time, we didn't know how to handle it. First of all, all we said was breast implants are safe. Mm -hmm. And we had men saying breast implants are safe. While everybody else says, these greedy plastic surgeons, they're safe, safe, but we don't know. Mm -hmm. So our practice dried up. Mm -hmm. And I'm not talking just aesthetic practice, but all of the practice dried up. So again, I go to Dr. Kirkling and I say, Dr. Kirkling, Jesus, things were going well, but uh, all of a sudden there's no practice. What am I going to do? And then he laughed with his inimitable laugh just (laughs) quietly, but I knew he was laughing. and says, Louis, what a wonderful opportunity. This is the second time you have a wonderful opportunity. Dr. Erkling, I don't think you understand. There is no practice. He says, what a wonderful opportunity. You have the time to study and to do something that is new. At that time, laparoscopy had been developed, and then we started studying. Well, actually, it was nothing but carton boxes and platinum. Mm-hmm. <laughs> with the to endoscope. With, with the endoscope, and then we developed endoscopy. And we actually developed endoscopy for all over the body, all over the body to apply to plastic surgery throughout the body. And it worked quite well for the forehead and the midface. It worked fairly well for the breast. It didn't work at all for the abdomen. Right. <laughs> and that <laughs> we tried to repair two abdominoplasties and repair hernias laparoscopically. It didn't work. Mm-hmm. We had to redo all those patients. But then that's how it started. It was the opportunity to do something. And again, having the fresh cadavers and having the university help you so much.
0: Sure.
1: It was important.
0: So I love that mindset. You know, instead of having a, a negative thought process about the problem, having, you know, saying it's an opportunity and taking advantage and and doing something really good with that.
1: Well, I think that that is the role models. And I should have included Dr. John, Dr. Rui Kirkland, but I didn't include him because the two conversations were the more mm-hmm. salient ones because I didn't have as much rapport as with Dr. McCormack, Dr. Furlow, and Dr. All mm-hmm.
0: All right. So I know all of the plastic surgery residents have heard about the rules of Vascones. So do you know how that came about, where we talk about some of the, the things that you like to mention in terms of flaps?
1: Yes. And they were all related to errors or <laughs> misinterpretations from our anatomical studies. For example, I will give you a couple examples. The rule that says all of the flaps survives except the part that you need it. Right. The reason for that is because when we study the anatomy of the muscle flaps with the blood supply coming in proximal, the major blood supply, mm-hmm. but then we also determined the arc of rotation. Now, remember, these were fresh cadavers with muscles that are flaccid mm-hmm. and there's no injury in the leg. So consequently, right. we determined that the arc of rotation of this particular muscle was extended this far back. Now, when you had a real patient, where you had scarring, where
2: mm-hmm.
1: you had a muscle that contracts, then right. <laughs> it just wouldn't go. And that's what I said, the muscle survived except for the parts that you needed. Yeah. So that's one. <laughs> the other thing that I would like to emphasize is if Plan A fails, don't make plan B the same as plan A. It is very simple to say, let's say somebody sent you a patient where they have done this operation and he failed. Mm-hmm. And it's very simple for us to say, oh, that doctor doesn't know how to do it. I'm going to show him how to do it. You do the same thing, and it's very likely they will fail again. And that has happened to me. Mm-hmm. I have done a flap, but not many times because I realized the plan B differently from that. And then I do the same flap, and it dies (laughs) twice. Right. So I think that that is important. If something doesn't work, it may not be a technical problem. It may not be that the surgeon was not prepared. It may be that the judgment was not as good as you thought. So try to reevaluate the situation, and if you can, change the plan. Great. So I think that that's – and (laughs) then there are other things – that we have said, but uh, those two are the important ones. The important I ones. Think so.
0: <laughs> All right, so tell me about, are there any other leadership roles that you've held and that you would like to talk about?
1: I have probably been unique in this aspect that I did not seek, and actually I resigned of leadership roles because I took very seriously my two obligations. And two obligations were taking care of patients teaching, and mm-hmm. hopefully learning too. Mm-hmm. So consequently, I was on the American board. Uh, the only things that I did accept was the American board of plastic surgery, the American board of surgery, because I think that they were, I consider them accolades. Mm-hmm. But I was on the board of trustees of the Society of the Education Foundation, of the American Association. I was a historian and all that. But I said, that's enough. Because I didn't want to go to meetings and Spend the time mm-hmm. and things like that. Right. So I never seeked any national prominence, but I must say that uh, that has come to me lately because I have received some awards that are for which I'm very thankful, and probably all the people deserve it just as much as me.
0: Well, I'm sure you are very deserving, so I, I wouldn't discount that at all. So I was doing the math, and if you graduated residency in 1970, you've been doing plastic surgery now for 51 years, and so that is such a long time. How can any of us live up to that and to accomplish just a small fraction of the things that you have accomplished over your lifetime?
1: I, again, I will answer that question by prefacing again, confirming what I have said to you before. I have been very lucky. But what has been, what has prolonged the professional life, my professional life?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I believe that one is always an open mind in the sense that if something new came up, I was trying to learn it. I did not say, oh, I'm not I'm not young, I don't want to learn that.
2: Mm-hmm. No,
1: I was trying to learn that. Right. The second thing I think is being associated with residents. Mm-hmm. They keep you sharp all the time. And I enjoyed taking care of patients. And with good residents, we were able to do just about any case. Wow. And specifically, in the last 10 years or so,
2: mm-hmm.
1: what has prolonged my career was the introduction of local anesthesia with minimal or no pain to do aesthetic surgery. And this is something that I considered a very important advance, although I must say that a lot of my colleagues sort of downgraded Mm -hmm. and I think that that is going to become more and more important because first of all, doing aesthetic procedures under local anesthesia, Mm -hmm. it is safer, Mm -hmm. the patient recovers faster, and although I never played this part as the reason for doing that, it is cost-effective, more Mm cost-effective.
0: So what do you feel is your biggest accomplishment in your career?
1: Uh, I, I have to change that. The biggest accomplishment in my career has to be having married my wife because she raised my children, my three daughters,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and my daughters. I believe that the, that has been my biggest accomplishment because without the help of my wife,
2: mm-hmm.
1: I was not a good father in that I was in the hostel a lot of times and correctly saw my wife sometimes says that you stayed in the hostel longer than you really needed to be. I don't know. Mm -hmm. There may be some truth in that. But I think that that is the biggest accomplishment. And if you want to be a little bit more specific from the point of view, my accomplishments, I believe that my accomplishments have been the ability to train residents not only in this country, but also to train whom have become leaders of plastic surgery throughout the world. And I'm talking about Europe, Japan, Korea, North and South America.
0: Wow, that really is. That's, um, that's definitely something to be proud of, sending out your knowledge to the world.
1: <laughs> well, it's because we have always had an open door when I was in San Francisco. And, of course, in Birmingham, you would think that who would want to come to Birmingham uh, but there's a lot of people who came to Birmingham. Right. And I have a list of all those people.
0: Well, you know, I met some as a medical student that were coming through as international scholars and are doing very well. So um, I was a witness to that myself.
1: And I must say another another thing that is also for which we're very, very grateful, Dr. Bruce Connell, who just Mm -hmm. passed away about six months ago, whom I have known for over 20, 30 years. And he was uh, originally from Gordo, Alabama, a small town in Alabama. And every year he used to come and visit us in Birmingham because he loved Birmingham and Mm -hmm. he loved fried catfish, so I'll make sure (laughs) that I give him catfish, fried catfish. He just left us a considerable amount of money for which we now have the Bruce F. Connell chair of plastic surgery, that Dr. De La Torre,
2: mm-hmm. and also
1: left us a certain amount of money
2: mm-hmm.
1: considerable to continue with our educational endeavors mm-hmm. for not only American graduates, but also foreign graduates.
0: That's so amazing. So we
1: will continue with that.
0: That is definitely amazing to hear. So with that, is there anything you would tell a young surgeon in training or maybe just starting their career? What would that be, and do you have any advice for them?
1: Well, advice is easy to give, so I'm not going to give any advice, but I will just say some suggestions. First of all, try to learn everything you can. And if you do not understand something, do whatever it takes to try to understand it. And the second thing is try to be a good doctor. Because without patients, you cannot teach, you cannot make a living, you cannot do research, you cannot do anything without patients. And that is why I worry about some people who think that patient care is secondary to the research or to the Mm -hmm. lectures. No, patient care is number one. Mm -hmm. So continue becoming the best doctor you can and keep learning and take care of patients.
0: Well, thank you very much, Dr. Vasquez. Do you have any closing thoughts before we end this interview?
1: I would like to thank you for taking the time to allow me to say these few words. I'm sure that a lot of people will probably not agree with me, but that is fine, <laughs> because there is nothing that pleases And I will end with this. Nothing pleases me more than when I make a statement, particularly concerning a clinical problem.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then... They prove me wrong, and it gives me a lot of joy because I probably have made more mistakes than anybody else. I don't mean to make it, sure, but it happens.
0: Well, that's the only way to get better, right? Yeah. To keep improving yeah. is to make mistakes, ask questions. All right, so Dr. Vasquez, you've been a major influence on my career as well as so many other trainees and patients who's lives you have changed so thank you for your dedication to our specialty of plastic surgery
1: thank you very much morgan and thank you for taking the time to do this
0: for our listeners make sure to rate and review us which brings this content to a wider audience subscribe as we will continue to bring you educational and insightful topics in plastic and reconstructive surgery follow us on instagram to get in the loop